0: as we get ready for Dr. Eden to bring the message that the Lord has for us today, I'm going to lead us in reading scripture. Um, we're going to be, I'm going to be reading, actually, from the Revised English Bible Translation, starting in Jeremiah 6. If you would please stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. Jeremiah 6.16. Take your stand and watch the crossroads. Inquire about the ancient paths. Ask, which is the way that leads to what is good? Take that way and you will find rest for yourselves. And then we read in chapter 31, verses 12 and 13, They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall become like a watered garden, and they shall never languish again. Then shall the women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. In Colossians 3, verses 12 through 16 reads, Put on the garments that suit God's chosen and beloved people. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Be tolerant with one another and forgiving. If any of you has cause for complaint, you must forgive as the Lord forgave you. Finally, to bind everything together and complete the whole, there must be love. And always be thankful. Let the gospel of Christ dwell among you in all its richness. Teach and instruct one another with all the wisdom it gives you. With psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, sing from the heart in gratitude to God. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
1: Well, it is a wonderful privilege to be here with you this morning in this marvelous historic church, Lake Avenue. I commend you for being such a vibrant, shining light in this neighborhood and city of Pasadena and the region around. I want you also to know that you have a fabulous senior pastor in Greg Waybright right? Greg was the president at Trinity International University through uh, so many of the years. I was president at Seattle Pacific University, and Sharon and I became such uh, good friends and colleagues and admirers of Chris and Greg Waybright. They are simply terrific people, in our opinion. Greg is one of those teacher preachers, folks. Uh, Every Sunday, opening up the Scriptures in such wonderful ways, digging into the Scriptures, bringing understanding and new reflection and understanding to the Scriptures, all the while thoughtfully observing the world around us. And I believe that's the combination that the church ought to have and that our pastors ought to have, and Greg certainly is one of those. There's no question about it. So, in any case, it's just great to be here with you today in this, in this great church. I want to focus this morning on the biblical literature of exile. These are the writers we often call the prophets. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Esther, Daniel, even some of the Psalms were written out of this period. Some of the greatest writing in all of human history. This writing takes place in and throughout the 6th century B.C. One of the darkest moments ever for God's people. They had been deported into exile in Babylon, a strange land for them. Their precious city of Jerusalem was reduced to rubble. As the psalmist says about this whole time, the big question for them is how now? Can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And I want to suggest this morning, that's our question too. In the 21st century, how now do we sing the Lord's song in the 21st century in this moment of time that is sometimes overwhelmingly discouraging? The eminent sociologist uh, James Davidson Hunter says, ours now is emphatically a post-Christian culture. The community of Christian believers are now more than ever, spiritually speaking, exiles in a land of exile. We have to come to terms with our exile in this land, in this moment as Christians. We feel it every day, don't we? We feel this strange pressure from our secular society to get out of the way, to get off the stage, to let us handle things, to sit it out on the margins. As Christians, a discouraging time in our time, a discouraging time, a deeply discouraging time in the sixth century B.C. So let's turn to these extraordinary writers. Let's turn to them for guidance. Let's turn to them for wisdom. How is it that we can lead our lives in this moment in time, in exile, too, in a moment of, of of extreme discouragement at times? Let me begin with a little story. The story comes out of a commencement speech by the late novelist David Foster Wallace. The commencement speech is not important to me. How he began that speech is uh, is important to me. Here's how the story goes. There are these two young fish swimming in a lovely stream on a beautiful day. They are swimming along and run into an older fish going the other way. How's it going, boys, says the older fish. How's the water? They all greet one another, nod respectfully, and continue on their ways. Suddenly, one of the younger fish leans over to his companion and asks with some measure of puzzlement, what in the world is water anyway? I find that a very funny line. I guess you didn't. I, I, I <laughs> what is this water in which we are swimming? Do we really know? Do we really think about it? I happen to be the kind of person that is always thinking about the kind of water in which I am swimming. I think everybody gets those questions from time to time. What is life all about? How did things begin? Where are we headed? How does God enter into the picture? Why in the world is there so much suffering? Actually, one of the traits of our secular culture is that everyone gets a chance to define the water. We get very little input on that, but guess what? We define it very differently then, don't we? We live in a Starbucks world where everyone gets a choice about everything, including how we're going to define the truth. You've got your definition, I've got mine, And never, never we are told rock the boat by challenging someone else's notion of the truth. In addition, things seem to be in constant swirl these days, don't they? We have a hard time pinning things down about what's going on and understanding those things. Things feel frantic and frenetic. A little unsettling. Along with Starbucks, by the way, I think I would describe our world as a Twitter world, where what's going on in this moment is suddenly gone in an instant. In the end, it seems to me, we have to say the water in which we swim is not very sparkling these days. It is probably better described as murky and muddy, sometimes turbulent. We get the feeling that we are coming apart at the seams, That's the title, by the way, of a wonderful, provocative, brand-new book by Charles Murray. In some ways, these are frightening times, disturbing times. The outlook is not very promising to us. Don't we have to stop and ask and say, is this really the world we want to create? Is this really the kind of society in which we want to live? Is this really the water that we want for our families and for our children and our grandchildren? And here is the point I want to make this morning. With breathtaking speed, our culture has completed its centuries-in-the-making secularization project. We are now, profoundly, it seems to me, and proudly, it seems to everyone else, secular to the core. Nietzsche won the day. God has been pushed off the stage in our culture. Christians have been banished to the sidelines of influence. We are indeed in exile in our own land. And then we must ask honestly this question, I think. Has this been a good thing? Has the secularization of our culture really produced something good, something healthy, something life-giving for our society? The British historian Christopher Dawson has this to say, that the civilization that finds no place for religion is a maimed culture that has lost its spiritual roots and is condemned to sterility and decadence. Not a very good word for our day. Not a very good time for the end, the finish, the completion of this long-sought-after secularization project. Well, where do we turn for guidance then? How do we in this room think about that? We can't sit around moping and sitting on our hands. As Christians, it seems to me, we're called to something else. Where do we turn for, for, for understanding of all of this, for a sense of direction for the future, for what we actually can do? As I said earlier, I have become flat out dazzled by the relevance for our day of the great biblical Literature of Exile. What we find in these writers, first of all, as you look into them, as I'm sure you can recall, is this gut-wrenching, agonizing, mournful reflection. Something precious has been lost. You hear it all the way through these Scriptures under the crushing power of the Babylonian forces, alien forces to them. God's people lost their beloved holy city of Jerusalem. It was reduced to rubble. This was huge. The echoes of this loss ripple down to our very day. Jerusalem was the defining center of their lives. The temple in Jerusalem is where God actually took up residence. This is where they worshipped. This is where they found their identity as a people where they defined the culture in which they were living. This is where they remember God's promise to Abraham that they actually had a chance to be a light for all of the world. Now it was all gone. Now in exile. They felt shuffled off into the dusty waste bins of history. They were aliens in an alien land of Babylon. Babylon. How then do we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? The great 17th century Dutch artist Rembrandt captures the mood of this extraordinary moment in an amazing painting called Jeremiah Lamenting the Loss of Jerusalem. Take a look at this painting. I hope you can see it. It's a wonderful, as Rembrandt always is, a wonderful painting. You can see all of the gloom there. You can see Jeremiah depressed and discouraged. Where do we go now? What do we do now? Our great city, our beloved city, our holy city has been reduced to nothing. You can see some artifacts on the stump. If you see, see this painting closely, you can see some artifacts sitting on a little stump out in front of him. Uh, artifacts coming out of the temple, now worthless. Worthless. Where do we go again? Can we build a temple ever again? Can we ever be of influence in the world? Can we be a light for the world? A very discouraging time, no question about it. But look again at this extraordinary painting. There is light coming from somewhere. You can say, well, it's the fires. Yes, I get that. I suppose that's a part of it, but it's something else. There is a radiance shining out of this painting. And I think Rembrandt's got Jeremiah's text exactly right. Just when we reach the kind of bottom, just when we reach the pits of discouragement and loss and mourning, suffering even, just when we reach those times, God's light shines into the scene. And that's what has happened in this painting. Isn't that marvelous? Isn't that a glorious thing? The anticipation here, you can see, almost see uh, Jer- Jeremiah's face in the painting thinking, well, what's next? What can we do? Where can we go? How can we build a better society? How can we begin again? Where do we start? There's thinking here in his text and in this painting that the future is not gloomy. God's light does shine in in this moment in time as I think God does shine in our own moment in time. So how do we begin again? When we find ourselves banished into exile, looking at these texts, let me suggest there are maybe four ways that we can think about for ourselves what we can do to move forward into the future. Discouraging times, no question about it. Push to the margins of influence, no question about it. What can we do? How can we live? in radiant ways that shine out into our neighborhoods and into our world. Well, the first step, it seems to me, is to clearly understand we have a starting point for thinking. We have a starting point for thought. This is the language of the great Leslie Newbigin, whom I love so much. She says, what we've got to do in our time is what the fathers of the early church had to do when Rome was collapsing Classical culture was disintegrating. We have to offer up a new starting point for thought. And that's what we have to do. There is no starting point in the hollowed out culture in which we live. So what is our starting point as Christians? By way of illustrating this, I want to show a marvelous video. Now watch this video and stay with me, okay, because it takes a little time. I've decided we need to see the whole thing because it unfolds. There is such joy in this. Watch this now. In a mundane mall, in the mundane food court of our lives, here echoing into this scene is the great language of Isaiah in the 6th century B.C., So we have the language from Isaiah all the way into this scene, as you will see. So let's watch the video together. What wonderful joy, isn't there? What a terrific uh, statement that we have a new starting point to think about the world. God enters into our lives and into our world in Jesus Christ, and He is Lord of lords, King of kings, forever and ever. So in our discouraging time... By the way, think about this video in this way that all the way back from the 6th century B.C. where these words were written, anticipating the coming of the Christ, of the Messiah, of Jesus, anticipating all that, all the way then to our 21st century moment of discouragement and exile here, we have a statement, a beautiful statement of another place to begin. We have a foundation. We have a center. Kingdom of this world says the great Isaiah in the 6th century, handled by Handel in the 18th century in our mall, the kingdom of this world that seems to discourage us so much at times is become the kingdom of our Lord. That's the big news. That's the starting point. In one of his recent books called Simply Jesus, N.T. Wright has this to say, that Jesus came announcing a new world in which God was in charge at last, on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus, God was fixing things, mending things, mending people, making new life happen. Isn't that marvelous? This was the new world in which God's promises were coming true. Announced all through the centuries, all through the millennia, God was uh, uh, stating, announcing, that there was a new world. God's promises were coming true in which new creation was happening, in which a real return from exile was taking place. So that's the first step. Start with a starting point. Find the starting point. Locate the starting point in Jesus Christ, the new King. A new King has arrived. We can have that confidence. So here's the second step. We turn to Jeremiah's extraordinary book again. He says this, Take your stand and watch at the crossroads. Watch the world. Take a look. Study the world. Watch what's going on. Think about it. This is what we're being called to do in this text from Jeremiah. In exile, yes, well, watch. Keep watch. See what's happening. Think about it. Read. Study it. And then at the same time, inquire about the ancient paths. Inquire about the ancient paths of our Scripture primarily. The ancient paths unfolded for us throughout Christian intellectual history. Inquire about it. Think about it. Reflect on it. Ask, which is the way that leads to what is good? Then take that way. Choose. Take that way. Take that path. And you will find rest for yourselves. This is an announcement now out of exile again. I gotta tell you, I think this is a great moment for Christians to be studying, to be thinking, to be reading, to be studying our great, wonderful, rich intellectual history, to read the fathers of the church to read the Scriptures primarily, of course. Open those things up with new glasses to understand our own day. I think this is an important moment for us to step back, think and write and study. Gather together to do that. Think about what's going on, of course, and then think about how our ancient paths come to inform our moment in time. The third step is huge and exciting, I think. Once again, we turn to Jeremiah. This text, by the way, is one of those dazzling moments of light coming out of the discouraging times. Look at this text. I love this one, by the way. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. By the way, this is a prophetic voice speaking. We are still in exile. We are still scattered across the earth. We are still deported to Babylon at this moment. And Jeremiah says, no, no, wait a minute. We shall come shouting aloud. Returning to Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord. This is our call right now, to be radiant over the goodness of the Lord. Find the goodness of the Lord. Locate that in your lives. Locate that all around. Locate it in the world around us. The natural world evening. Announce and celebrate in our lives the goodness of the Lord, and we shall be radiant. That's what we're called for in a dark time, it seems to me. That's what Jeremiah is absolutely saying. Be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, the oil, over over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life, our lives, shall be like a watered garden. And they, we, shall never languish again. Then shall the women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. This is the promise. Be radiant over the goodness of the Lord. Look, think, meditate, pray over the goodness of the Lord, and we shall be radiant. It will change our perspective on a discouraging world. We shall be radiant over this goodness of, of the Lord. And then go to work. This passage says, go to work. Live your lives fully. Do your work. Plant your gardens. Eat your gardens. This, this, this passage is just full of a sense of the joy of living, isn't it? Dance in the streets. Enjoy the fruit of your labors. And in all of that, God promises, I will turn your mourning into joy. This is the promise. I will comfort you. I will give you gladness for sorrow. Well, the fourth step is to live our lives upside down. Let me explain this language. Recently, the great New Testament scholar N.T. Wright delivered a beautiful sermon for the 600th anniversary of the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, where he now works, by the way. And he was talking to his audience during this 600th anniversary, and he was saying, you know, when this university was formed 600 years ago, most people believed the message of the early Christians. And what was that message? That true greatness comes through sacrificial love. That's an upside down way of looking at things for our culture, right? True greatness in our culture is constantly, we're being told to self promote, to self serve, to serve ourselves, to serve ourselves first. And what Wright is saying here is 600 years ago, when this university was an upside down view, the message of The Christian faith is sacrificial love and that true greatness, true leadership consists in self-giving service through most of the history of Western culture, (coughs) truth and beauty were seen, says right, by most, by most everyone as reaching their climax in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So how do we live that upside down? Culture is coming at us, telling us that we need to be out, look out for ourselves always. Look, I'm not being foolish here. I understand all of that. I understand the pressures that we've got to self-promote at times, no question. But in the midst of that, carry yourselves in ways that are self-giving instead of self-serving. I love this passage, our last passage out of Colossians. Paul picks up on this theme of the upside-down way of living and says, listen, folks, put on the garments that suit God's chosen and beloved people. Compassion. Kindness. Humility. Gentleness. Patience. What if in this culture that's hollowed out at the core and in terms of any teaching about how to live decent lives and build a decent society what if we carried ourselves with kindness compassion humility gentleness patience it's an upside-down way of living but it is in fact a way that can change the world it can change our lives he's saying be tolerant with one another and forgiving finally to bind everything together and complete the whole there must be love and always be thankful For the goodness of the Lord, let the Gospel of Christ dwell among you in all its richness, in this church, in our lives. Teach and instruct one another with all the wisdom it gives you, with psalms, of course, as we were singing today. I love the music here this morning and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing from the heart in gratitude to God. This will change the world. Says Paul. Steps you can take, concrete ways you can live, turn your life around, turn it upside down, live in a self giving kind of way rather than a self serving kind of way. Someone has said that this passage in Colossians, uh, even broadly, is one of the greatest statements in all of Scripture about character formation. Paul is saying here you can put on these traits every morning like you pick out a different shirt to wear every morning. Put them on. It's a spiritual discipline. It is something that, in fact, we can do. We can think about it. We can think about living this way, and it will change our lives. I've come to see this as a very, very practical kind of step. So what do we do to be radiant people? These are the steps we might think about and the steps we may take as we seek to be radiant people for our world, for this church, for this church reaching out into our world. Let me close with this. Sharon and I were walking in the streets of Seattle the other evening. Now, we live in downtown Seattle, by the way, and we walk our streets often. What a marvelous city it is, a magnificent place to live. I have 20 great restaurants on my iPhone that we can reach in walking distance, huh? How's that? Fabulous place to live, the home of Boeing and Amazon and Nordstrom's and Starbucks and Costco. And what am I leaving out? A lot of places, a lot of creative, dynamic energy coming out of this great city. And yet, as we walked the other evening, we were stunned by the brokenness we saw on our streets. You can experience that on any of the streets of our great cities. There is a brokenness in our world, and we see it. It's a visible signal that something is wrong. Something's not working right. The great secularization project has not produced a great society. There's brokenness here. And what can we do? I find myself just with a broken heart over this. What can I do? As we read earlier, when Jesus came, He came mending people, healing people, bringing people together, creating a sense of community that could bring the brokenness in and serve it in ways that can be life-giving and healing. And this is exactly where we are. We have a vision for human flourishing as Christians to offer to our world. Right? We have to have confidence in that. We have a starting point for thought. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord. We have a starting point. We gain the confidence in that. And then we become radiant people in our circles, in our families. We build healthy families, we do our work with excellence, with radiance, we plant our gardens, we, 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 we eat good food together, we celebrate life, we celebrate the goodness of the Lord, and in that radiance we shine out to all the world around us. Well, God bless you in this congregation. I believe you are a radiant people. I believe this is a church that is vibrant. You come into this worship service and I think there is a vibrancy here. You get this message. You understand that. I think we all have got to be working on how to become radiant people for our world. That will change our lives. It will make our lives flourishing, okay? It is for ourselves, yes, but we are flourishing and radiant so that we can change the world. Amen.